And we are live, right? We are now, li well, we're not live in that. I'm not live streaming it, but I am now recording. Uh, today, I have a repeat guest, Dr. Randy Nesse, who is one of the pioneers of evolutionary medicine. I will shortly read your brief bio, but first, how are you doing, Randy? I'm doing well. Great to see you again, again. Likewise, likewise. Uh, so let me just uh, read some of the your the highlights. You're research professor of life sciences at, S at ASU, Arizona State University. But you also, I think, have a professor emeritus status at University of Michigan, where you spent a large part of your career. You're a founding director from 2014 to 2019 of the Center for Evolution and Medicine at ASU. Your Google Scholar makes me feel very bad about myself. It makes me think that I need to be <laughs> spending more time publishing. Uh, incredible Google Scholar Citation Index, an H index of 89. You are the recipient, as I might add, I am, of the Darwinism Applied Award granted by the Applied Evolutionary Psychology Society, in your case for applying evolutionary theory to medicine, in my case for applying it to marketing, business, consumer psychology, and so on. Your books, the one that I first discovered you uh, reading was Why We Get Sick, The New Science of Darwinian Medicine with uh, George C. Williams, the late George C. Williams, and your most recent book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings, Insights from the Frontier of Evolutionary Psychiatry. Do you want to add anything to that, Randy, before we get going? No, that, that's plenty. Let's talk about other things. All right. So let's go. So first, uh, for those of you who don't know, the last time that Randy was on was December. I went back and checked December 2, 2015. So seven and a half years ago. Really? I think, wow. Yeah. The sad truth episode of our chat was 101. And I think the one that we're doing right now will be 1,580. So my gosh, that's a lot of shows. Uh, what yeah. what has been, what have you been up to the last seven and a half years from a professional uh, perspective? Maybe you can tell us a bit. You know, I've been gradually shifting from evolutionary medicine in general to evolutionary psychiatry, and that's where this all got started. Yeah, back in 1984, shortly after meeting Dick Alexander and Bill Hamilton and Martin Daly at University of Michigan, and then setting me straight about the fact that you needed both halves of biology, um, I wrote an article about evolution and psychiatry, and it was immediately clear that. Um, I really had to figure out evolution and why we're vulnerable to disease in general before anything would happen for psychiatry. Plus, nobody would pay any attention. So that led to writing the book with George Williams, and, and that got a lot of people interested in asking this new question, not why some people get sick, but why we're all vulnerable to disease, why natural selection didn't do a better job for us. My whole career has been about that, and for many decades, I kind of concealed the fact that I was a psychiatrist because there's a lot of prejudice against psychiatrists, um, and now I'm finally coming back to it, and it's been glorious that now, finally, thanks a lot to Riata Bed and Paul Engine Smith in the United Kingdom, uh, they have 2,500 members in the Evolutionary Psychiatry Interest Group in the Royal College of Psychiatry. And just a couple of weeks ago, we had two symposia at the American College, at the American uh, Psychiatric Association. And I think I mentioned to you my giant article about evolutionary psychiatry came out just last week in the journal World Psychiatry. So things are finally coming along. It just takes a few decades. Wow. Now, why do you think that, I mean, I, I know we both know some of the key reasons, the obstacles, why people can't stand the application of the evolutionary lens you know, in understanding human behavior in general, and we can discuss those if you'd like, but is there something unique about some of the obstacles that have not allowed or permitted 
psychiatrists and clinical psychologists to adopt the evolutionary lens? What's the what's stopping them from doing so? Um, just not knowing much of anything about evolutionary biology is the big one. Um, no, people just there's too much to learn. Again, I mean, if you're in medical school, there's there's no time in the curriculum even for learning all the things you have to learn. And we've not succeeded in getting things in the curriculum about evolutionary medicine. However, a huge advance has been that now one half of all major universities in the USA have courses on evolutionary medicine. So we're really getting there on that count. I, you know, I, I think it's mostly just ignorance plus the professions, uh, whether it's engineering or accounting or psychiatry or, or surgery, you know, people have to do things now uh, to help the people that are coming to them. And that's so understandable. Um, and those of us in evolutionary psychiatry, we don't have a new new treatment. We're, it's not faster, better, cheaper. Um, in the long run, we have something invaluable, which is a solid scientific foundation for the field. Uh, but that's the very long run. In the meanwhile, uh, people are desperate for how to help their patients now. And I certainly sympathize with that because I've certainly done it for a long time. But do you think that a lot of, so to your point, uh, I want to solve something now as a mechanic of the mind or a mechanic of the body. And therefore I don't care about ultimate level theorizing. Just, I need to make something work ASAP. You've got a symptom. I've got to find a way to solve it. But the reality though, is that there beyond simply creating greater consilience through the application of the evolutionary lens, there are real actionable practical interventions that you would have been uh, not privy to had you not adopted an evolutionary lens. Would, would such an argument allow many of the reticent therapists to come on board, show the practical value of the evolutionary lens? Good point as usual, Gad. And I've been stodgy about this, and I've been very worried that people are going to take you know, evolutionary psychiatry and run with it without knowing the foundations and, and saying silly things. Uh, and that happens to some extent. But colleagues, especially Alfonso Torisi in Rome and uh, Riyadh Abed in London, have convinced me that, yes, we actually have a lot to offer right now to clinicians. And so I've been following their lead and going ahead and doing it. And it's working out. Um, at the APA just two weeks ago, we had a whole symposium, one on depression, one about evolutionary psychiatry in general, all about, so how can this help clinicians now? And we could talk more about, about how it does, but we're already there in terms of some things, especially for emotional problems. So pro the, the one that I think is most palpable to many of our viewers who, you know, who are not uh, in the field as professionals might be perhaps an understanding of the evolutionary genesis of some of the most common phobias. Would that be probably the example that you lead off if you're if you're speaking to you know your your nephew or your grandmother? Is this the one that you use to give a sense to people how an evolutionary understanding could help us as clinicians? I haven't been using that, and I should because I spent 40 years of my career helping to develop one of the world's first anxiety disorders clinics. <laughs> I treated hundreds of people with phobias, and it's really quite simple to you know for most people. If you expose people to the stimulus and can help them through various you know, sympathetic means to stay in contact with the, the phobic object and the fear for an hour or more, uh, their fear is going to decrease. Um, does knowing an evolutionary perspective help that a lot? Not that much, but here's an angle that's really helpful. People ask, so is my fear of snakes innate? And maybe you know and maybe you don't that fear of snakes is not innate. 
it's, it's the learning the learning is the it's it's prepared learning you know yeah. and there are great great studies by susan meinecke and others showing that you know infant monkeys who've never seen a snake um are not afraid of it but if they watch a single video of another monkey being afraid they're afraid for the rest of their lives and that's a good thing that's cool the way way the brain is wired uh, to instantly learn that you cannot teach them fear of a flower or fear of a butterfly uh, nearly so easily so our natural selection has shaped our minds to have connections that are ready to go uh, between anxiety and certain dangerous cues uh, and not other things i could should confess that when i'm treating people for phobias I don't have to use the E word, but I do tell them that there's a built-in mechanism uh, in the body to downregulate your anxiety that works only if you do the very you know, painful thing of staying in the presence of the anxiety until it goes down on its own. And that helps a lot of people uh, to recognize that what they're doing in the exposure therapy is worthwhile and, and it has a rationale. Beautiful. I wanted to show you a book uh, and I'll explain how it, it's relevant. Have you have you read this book, Randy Eric Kandel's no. autobiography? No. You, are you familiar with who he is? Of course, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Eric Kandel started off wanting to become a psychoanalyst. Uh, you know, he he was born in Vienna, so he's you know he's he comes from that you know the allure of the Vienna circle and so on. And then, uh, you know, he got, and many of the psychoanalysts at the time used to become first physicians before they became psychoanalysts. Then later he discovered, you know, all of these proximate biological mechanisms. And then he decided to kind of try to, to the best of his abilities, marry some of his biology of learning with some of his early interests in psychoanalysis. And in a sense, I mean, in a completely different way, but that's what you're trying to do is you're trying to marry things that many people would think are unrelated to one another, and you're trying to create that consilience as E.O. Wilson taught us, right? That's right. I mean, it's the ultimate you know, cross-disciplinary, you know, transdisciplinary enterprise, and that's both the opportunity and the challenge. By the way, Kandel's articles about evolution or, or, or brain mechanisms and psychodynamics are very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, my original articles about evolution and psychiatry, two of them were about psychodynamics and psychoanalysis. And I thought it was thrilling to be able to recognize that there's a good reason for having the unconscious. And there are good reasons for the defenses that we use to keep things unconscious. And there, I think I, I've argued that they're products of natural selection because a completely objective view of reality and of our friends um, leads us to have fewer friends. Um, <laughs> it, it's really better often to be um, you know, a little bit deluded about such things. Uh, I had long conversations with Bob Trivers and Dick Alexander about this. Their take on it is that um, it's better to not be aware of your nasty impulses so that you can deceive people and trick them um, better. Wow. Uh, so not knowing what your actually sneaky strategies you're pursuing, you know, and I, you know, I studied this for about a year and I find it, yeah, you guys are probably right. Uh, but it's not all that bad because our unconscious also keeps us unaware of the misdeeds of our friends uh, so we can stay friends with them. Um, and it also keeps us unaware very often of nasty things we might want to do that we don't do. Um, mm -hmm. and that that helps. And, and coming back to your work, though, in marketing and desire and happiness, I think also, the, and I haven't written much about this, Gad, but it's, I think it's very interesting from your perspective. Um, we all have all kinds of desires we cannot fulfill. 
So do we spend the rest of our lives envying people who have what we don't have or feeling bad and continuing to strive for things? That's like a recipe for unhappiness. I mean, I think there are built-in mechanisms to, to make us all think, hey, I didn't want that after all, you know? <laughs> so, so it's ridiculous that I wanted this or that I wanted that. And thank goodness we have that mechanism built in. It makes life a lot happier. Well, I actually, in, in, so in, in my forthcoming book, this guy right here, this one, uh, mm -hmm. I talk about, I mean, briefly about you know some evolutionary implications of the pursuit of happiness, but to, to sort of link it to our mutual interest in evolutionary theory, I don't think humans have a domain general mechanism seek happiness, right? Rather, they have domain specific maximization objectives, which if pursued properly can result as a downstream happiness, right? So it's kind of, does that make sense to you? Yeah, I mean... Um... I, my work on emotions, Gad, has made me think that there are some kind of domain general mechanisms for pursuing goals. Okay. I mean, if there's an opportunity, we feel excitement and desire. And then if things are going well, we feel flow. And if we fail, we feel disappointment. And if we succeed, we feel pleasure or, or happiness. Likewise, for negative things, you know, we feel anxiety if there's a threat. And we try to get rid of it. And if we succeed, we feel relief. And if we don't succeed, there's pain or loss. But but I think you're absolutely right that each all of those stages along the pursuit of goals um, are customized to different domains. So jealousy, for instance, has to do with the threat of losing either a, a partner or the fidelity of a partner. Um, and there are status competitions that have gender. So, I mean, this whole idea that there are all these nice chunks of things and little boxes and emotions. Um, I mean, I studied emotions for two full years trying to figure out how to make sense of them as a psychiatrist who was treating emotions, you know, really, I was gonna say 24 seven. It was 24 seven because you think about it all night and all night long and what, what to do for your patients. And, and finally, I recognized that all these attempts to figure out how many basic emotions are there, you know, um, it was just a non-evolutionary view. And I still haven't convinced even my all of my evolutionary psychology colleagues that we should stop talking about what is the function of this emotion, because you know, each emotion has multiple functions and each function is instantiated by multiple uh, emotions. And what we should be doing is asking for each emotion in what situation that's recurred over evolutionary history has this emotion been useful? Because emotions evolve from each other. And they're basically adapted from other emotions. Um, and this, this makes so much sense, I think. And you can explain this to patients and, and it helps all of our lives. Now we come back to happiness, uh, which is the topic of your book. I mean, one of my very first articles was on the evolution and the elusiveness of happiness. Right. Yeah, I, I and, cited the, I think, I don't know how you pronounce his name, Grinde, I think has written a few papers on a Darwinian uh -huh. perspective on happiness. And also, of course, David Buss has. Uh, are, are there some other folks that are now at the intersection of happiness and evolution that I might have missed? Uh, there are a lot of people who work about positive psychology and yeah. evolution these days. And I'm, I'm all in favor of that on one count, because the positive emotions have been neglected. We have all been trying to fix the negative emotions and not bothering to do the other half of it. But it's fascinating from an evolutionary point of view that you know positive and negative emotions are not opposites. It's perfectly possible to experience both at the same time if you're in two situations uh, that, that arouse both of those. Uh, my objection to some of what the positive psychologists say is, is that there's this um, assumption that feeling positive emotions all the time is a good thing. Right. 
And that's not true. Um, I mean, sometimes it's not not experiencing a ne- negative emotion is really you know, bad. I, I talk about hypophobia, which is the disease of not having enough anxiety, and it can be fatal. You know, it's um, because it causes you to be reckless in your behavior. Is that what that? Yeah, means? yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, every every year, six or seven or, or so people fall into the Grand Canyon. Uh, it's two to one men versus women. Um, but, you know, people who are more careful. In fact, just out my window recently, uh, I've been watching my, the baby crane there. And there were two cranes, um, two baby cranes earlier in the season. And one was bold and wandered off and the other stayed close to mom and dad. Now there's only one crane. Can you guess which one it is? <laughs> the the one that stayed close to mom and dad. I, I kept tell, telling both cranes, go back to mom and dad. It's dangerous around here. There's an eagle. Um, but they didn't pay any attention. Interesting. Now, uh, this is not so much of an evolutionary question, but certainly one of relevance to psychiatry. So in the old days, we had a strictly environmentalist view, right? I mean, even something as organic as a disorder as paranoid schizophrenia was attributed to you know a schizophrenic uh, mother and so on and then we 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 went to the other end of the fulcrum where everything was a pharmacological intervention there's no need to talk to you pop this prozac pill and get out of my office as quickly as possible now is now it seems as though we've kind of gone back towards the middle so, so first is that historical explanation accurate of how psychiatry has gone yeah, but it's it's such a rich story. Edward Shorter has written several nice books about this transition, and I've been talking with friends about it who started in the field in, in the 1970s, and we wanted to really listen to people and have relationships with them and use everything we could to help them. And the field kind of slid out from under us uh, because insurance reimbursements and pressure from clinics to make as much money as possible uh, quickly changed to pressures to see people for half an hour. Um, and to make sure that all psychotherapy was done by people who were less expensive. And, you know, if you're trying to maximize mental health for the population, you probably want psychiatrists doing things that only psychiatrists can do because nobody else can do them. Um, on the other hand, the, the real pleasure and richness of, of psychiatric practice uh, faded um, and it became more of a, you know, check the symptoms and give a prescription and tell them to come back. Um, I, I was so privileged to you know, be at the University of Michigan, where at least for most of the time, I was able to take optimal care of my patients. Um, but so many people in private practice or in, in organized practices are, are pressured to see people every 30 minutes. And gosh, it's, it's economic forces more than intellectual and, and ideological things. But I wanted to go back to something else that's so interesting. I mean, it's so interesting that people settle on some simplistic version of something and, and then get committed to it. And this is just part of human you know, thinking, I think. Um, it, first it was your, your, your parents did it to you and, and then it was distorted thinking does it to you and, and then it was brain abnormalities does it to you and maybe it's social. But people get committed to one kind of cause yeah. and one kind of treatment often and I think one of the huge advantages of evolutionary psychiatry is it offers a framework yeah. to tie all of these things together. You don't have to be, you know, a psychopharmacologist or behaviorist or psychodynamic person. You can use all the modalities and all your understanding together to try to help this individual person. 
And I think this is what's going to carry the day for evolutionary psychiatry. It's not a special method of treatment. It's a way of bringing together everything we can, can, can use in our armamentarium to help people more effectively. Our, our, our psychiatrists in training who are pursuing a residency program, a fellowship in psychiatry, are there now dedicated official programs in evolutionary psychiatry? Or is this something like most of us did not originally train in evolutionary psychology per se, right? I mean, even the founders of evolutionary psychology were not, quote, evolutionary psychologists in their training, right? So but are there now dedicated, I am officially, I'm going to do a two-year residency in Darwinian psychiatry, or is this just something that you pick up by reading Troy Z and by, by reading Randy Nessie? So there are no programs any place, and I regularly get emails from people saying, I want to, I'm, I'm a resident, I want to become an evolutionary psychiatrist. It's very hard to figure out what to say to them because there are no places you can go uh, to study this in depth. So as you say, I, I think it's going to be up to people reading books and going to conferences. Um, again, the UK is far ahead. The APA is helping. Um, it's a slow process, Gad. Sometimes people say you should be angry because, you know, it's just the way the world is. And it's good for <laughs> medicine to be stodgy, I think, because if it's not stodgy, it, it goes with the latest fad. Um which, which brings us to, you know, hey, I really hope that psychedelics and ketamine can cure lots of people safely and easily and permanently. But the actual studies um, are not very strong. Right. Uh, they're advocacy studies mostly so far. And I sincerely hope that those kind of things can work. But after you've been through so many things like that in your career and watched, um, you have to be cautious. Do you feel, so earlier, I think you you quoted uh, that 50% of medical schools now have some sort of evolutionary medicine. I, I wish, I wish. 50% of undergraduate programs. Oh, I see. Okay. Now, no, it, no medical school teaches even two hours of evolution. Oh, because that's why, because I was, I was about to say that I'm shocked that it's 50%. You should be celebrating up and down. I think that's an amazing <laughs> I, result. I will celebrate. We'll, we'll have a big party once 50% of medical okay. students. So that students. number but, is, is negligible. No, none. But if you're a dean, it's hard to do it. Um, with the dean of the Harvard Medical School, Yale Medical School, came to a National Academy meeting we had now 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and we all agreed we have to get this stuff in the curriculum. We wrote a big article in, in the in PNAS about this, um, but then they went back to Yale and Harvard, but even the dean can't, you know, they don't have any, any evolutionary biologists on the faculty. Uh, there's no money for doing this kind of thing, and worse yet, um, they're pressured to make sure that their students get the best possible scores on board examinations and these questions are not on the examinations so what's a dean to do um we need to grow up the people who are junior who are learning all these things and turn them into deans and that's happening um, i think gradually we're making good progress you know back in 2009 i think i had hosted david sloan wilson at concordia and as as you know randy but maybe some of our listeners don't uh he was the original a pioneer of founding a evolutionary studies program, which by definition is this interdisciplinary program. You can take it irrespective of what you're majoring in, where you learn about the application of evolutionary thinking across many different disparate domains. And so since I knew David well, he was visiting, I thought, okay, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure that Concordia is the first Canadian university to have an EVOS program, right? And so 
And of course, as we often hear in the mission statement of nearly every university in the world, oh, we're strong for interdisciplinarity. <laughs> and so I went to each of the deans uh, of the various faculties and guess what they did? They turned territorial as we know from ethology, right? And so even though from this side of your mouth, you're stating, I don't, I mean, the, the universities, they're stating, oh yeah, we support interdisciplinarity. When someone comes and says, well, here is the epitome of interdisciplinarity. I'd like to found a, a EVOS program at Concordia. Then from this side of their mouth, they say, whoa, 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 no, no, no. What does evolution have to do with engineering? What does evolution have to do with art history? What, and so on and so forth. And so it, it's quite disheartening because many of us, I mean, none more so than you who's been doing it for many decades, we really wish to push these interdisciplinary programs, but it's as if the, the human mind is not, the architecture of the human mind is structured to see things in silos rather than in a synthetic, organ, you know, coherent way, right? Yep. You're so <laughs> right. I think that one of the reasons David has had some success is because he has big funding behind what yeah. he's doing. And if you go to deans and the like and say, we want to do this, I'll say, that's wonderful. What funding do you have? Right. Um, there was something at University of Michigan sometime around eight, nine years ago was doing a huge renovation of its medical curriculum. Mm -hmm. And they said, and they kept sending his notes saying, well, we want innovative ideas for how we can get a modern curriculum that's up to date. And so sure enough, I sent them something saying, actually, there's this whole evolutionary foundation for medicine, which is growing fast. And I'd be glad to help you put some of it together. Uh, no reply. Um, then they sent it out again. And so I sent up another note saying, um, did you get my note? Are you interested in this? Um, <laughs> no reply. And so finally, I copied several people, including one of my friends who was the provo or vice provost for that. Um, and I finally got a reply saying, um, dear Dr. Nessie, we're aware of your special interest in this area. Thank you very much. But they're frightened. You know, I didn't really answer your question fully. The first question you asked, Gad, about why people are reluctant uh, to pursue work in this area. Um, I mean, just saying that they don't know any about it, that's true. And that, that's the biggest thing. But a lot of people have ideas about evolutionary biology uh, that are incorrect and frightening to them. Uh, several deans have told me that, no, they don't, wouldn't dare put an explicitly evolution thing in their curriculum because they'd get complaints from donors uh, and from from others, not all deans, but certain certain deans are very sensitive to that, and they've got enough problems with controversy without bringing up all all of that kind of kind of thing. You're, you're thinking the donors <laughs> in this case, it's there because they're religiously minded and they view evolution as antithetical to their religious worldview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and even you know uh, that that's more from the right side of things from the left side um a lot of people are worried that evolution is going to you know talk about possible sex differences uh, between men and women um and furthermore there's this more deep disturbing thing about the origins of of human morals and selfishness and generosity and all the rest and i think you know we have not done that good a job um, in evolutionary psychology about helping people understand the origins of human goodness and morality and all the rest. Um, you know, attempts, I'll, I'll just say, uh, to attribute that to group selection, that, that just doesn't work. Yeah. Um, I, I, maybe you think it does, and we could talk no, about No, actually, I'm, I'm on your side. So if, just to plug a book, Kus Bumsma has, I think, the most spectacular book about really trying to understand how evolution works and how the origins of cooperation uh, come up. It's called Domains, Transitions of, in Social Evolution. He's an insect biologist. It's a spectacular book going through all the details, very dense, 
but anybody who really wants to get into that uh, should should read that book. But I know that there's a solution. I mean, I spent years upset at night saying, gosh, are we all really selfish because you know, our genes are making us do selfish things? And long discussions with Bill Hamilton and Dick Alexander and, and you know, all of our group at Michigan was into this all the time. And of course, George Williams and I talked about this day after day and for weeks and years. Well, he's sort take, of, forgive me for interrupting you. He was arguably the one who offered the most devastating attack against group selections. Is that not right? I think that's correct. Yeah. But but he took this, um, I think, inappropriately negative view of what natural selection can shape. He wrote an article essentially saying, yes, people have claimed that, that morality is possible, but if it is possible, it's only because of an accident. Natural selection couldn't possibly shape anything to create genuine, genuine altruism. So I argued with him about that for years. And, and, and finally, I found a solution that satisfied me and I think satisfies many other people, too. Uh, and this is the solution from Mary Jane West Everhard. Uh, it's called social selection. And I've just run it through because it, I think it has to do with your work on right. conspicuous consumption and happiness. Um, I mean, I've been very, this has troubled me my whole career again. Um, I mean, first of all, I did a lot of work on what's called commitment theory, game game theory of commitment. I won't go into that now, but I think that's for, for very close personal relationships. I think that's, that might be more relevant often. But you have to ask, as she, Mary Jane West Everhead did, how does natural selection shape really extreme traits that harm the individual? And you start with the peacock's tail, right? Uh, because the peacock you know, has a huge tail. It can't even fly anymore, but it increases fitness. And here's a crucial thing she pointed out. She said, well, just as you know, peacocks choose mates, we all choose partners aside from sexual partners for who we want to spend time with. And who do we want for a partner? We want someone who's generous and honest and helpful and empathic. And who feels guilt? And so, so these selfish choices of partners, we're all choosing the best possible partners for ourselves. But in making those choices, we end up creating selection forces for those traits of generosity, altruism, empathy, and, and all the rest. And this turns out to be deeply helpful, not only for helping people realize that no, natural selection doesn't make individuals selfish. Genes may be selfish, but they create generous individuals because otherwise you don't have any friends and you die. Um, so this, but this is so helpful in a clinic too. Um, I treated social anxiety for years and I used to tell my patients, oh, we're gonna help you become less sensitive because you're just too sensitive. And, and gradually I realized that, that this gift of caring a lot what other people think about you. I mean, it's a gift. And and the people who lack that are the ones who are in real trouble. Well, um, I, I I mean, to, to that point, uh, in one of the chapters of my forthcoming book on happiness is about what I argue is is the, the most pervasive figure in nature. And that's the inverted U curve, which captures what the ancient Greeks talked about, you know, everything in moderation, right? Too little of something not good, too too much of something not good. Somewhere in the middle is the, the sweet spot. And so let's apply it, say, to perfectionism, right? If, if I am not in the least bit perfectionist, then my work will suffer because I'm not, I don't have attention to details. I don't care about all the little minutia. On the other hand, which what I'm about to dis discuss applies to me, I'm on past the inflection point of the inverted curve. When I receive my galley proofs, I go into a full-blown panic attack because I'm worried, what if I don't pick up the one comma that's out of place? And so I end up spending two weeks 
going over something, which really is completely suboptimal because even if it were to not, if I weren't able to pick up the misplaced comma, it would have been much better for me to spend two weeks doing something else rather than reading it for the 74,000th time. And so somewhere in the middle is there. And so what I actually demonstrate in, 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 the, in that chapter of the book is that the inverted U applies at the neuronal level for optimal brain functioning. It applies at the individual level. It applies for certain things at the group level. And so I argue that if there is one law of nature that we could apply across endless units of analysis, it's the inverted U shape. What do you, what do you think of that? I think it's a profound idea and, and let's credit Aristotle, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> but speaking... Speak. Well, it's been around a long time. So I, you know, you might or might not know about my work on uh, cliff edge fitness functions, and and the idea is what, what is it? I missed the first part. A, a cliff edged fitness function. I don't think so. I so just like you know, you're talking about, you get this you know, U-shaped curve um, for everything. I mean, the example I use is too simple but useful. I mean, how long and thin should a horse's leg bones be? Hmm. And the answer is. Well, the longer and thinner they are, the faster the horse is. And if, you're breeding, and if you're breeding, if you're breeding racehorses, what you get is longer and thinner bones, and you get the kind of tragedies we've seen at races recently, where you know one out of a hundred starts, a horse breaks its leg. This is such a perfect, you know, example for trying to understand the evolution of vulnerability because those horses have been shaped by breeding, not natural selection, for being fast. And what happens is that you know you get all the way up to this this point where the leg is really long, thin and delicate. And those are the horses that win races at the price of occasional catastrophe. So you have to ask the question about uh, where does natural selection shape something like our, our intensity of desire to come right back to your book. And I think somehow in there is an answer to the question you and I have spent our lives trying to figure out. I mean, why the heck can't we all just be happy? Thank you. Yeah. But why why didn't natural selection shape the you know peak where we're where natural selection puts us all um, at a place where we're shifted over a ways towards happiness? Right. Uh, I think I have an unpleasant answer to that. Possibly I have I haven't tested this. This is just talk, yeah. But it seems to me that you know natural selection could well have shaped our our tendency to want things and desire um, to be higher than is good for us, right? Because it's good for our genes. What do you think about that? I, I mean, I, I I buy it. I mean, I'd love to find a way to test that idea, but uh, certainly I, on its surface level, it, it it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but speaking to your earlier point, when I mentioned the inverted U and you said that idea has been around uh, for a while. So let me actually further solidify what you I'll said. Bet you, I bet you have a new take on it. I want to hear it. No, no. So this is the ancient Greeks, as you know, of course, talked about everything in moderation. The, the Buddhist philosophy has that. Confuci Confucius had that. So, you know, what's called the middle way in Buddhism, right? Middle way, meaning the sweet spot. And so this brings me to something that uh, a friend of mine, I, I would assume you might know him. Do you know who Nassim Talib is? No, I don't. Na Nassim Talib is is a fellow Lebanese who's oh, a yes. best... Yes, I do know him. Yes, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, you... Okay. So uh, he, he can be a cantankerous guy, so some people don't appreciate his, his personal style, but, you know, he's a good friend. Uh, he once was joking with me, and he said, you know, Gad, I, I really respect your work. You, you know, you're, you're a wonderful academic, but I always wonder, what is it that you guys study in psychology since everything that there is to study about human nature, the ancient Greeks have already discovered? Now, of course, I, I knew that he was kind of ribbing me and I, I laughed politely, but as I was writing 
my latest book, Randy. And so I really did a, a, I did a deep dive into the ancient Greeks, the, the Stoics and Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and the rest of them. I kind of stopped for a second. I said, I think Nassim Talib was kind of right because every time I would have an insight that I thought was novel to me. Oh boy, let me let, let me see if anybody's ever said this. Oh, well, here comes Epictetus. He's already said this 2000 years ago. But by the way, you probably know that cognitive behavior therapy is nothing but stoicism, right? Or, or at least the fundamental features. So what are your thoughts on that? Is it, I mean, what was so magical about the ancient Greeks that despite the fact that they didn't have access to some of the empirical techniques that we have today, just through pure philosophizing, they were able to crack a lot of the mysteries of the human mind. It's unbelievable. But but notice that they didn't all come to agreement. Right, true. Um, you may know Martha Nussbaum's lovely book uh, about you know, Greek philosophy, and how, really her description is how really what they were trying to offer is philosophical advice to kind of like psychotherapists are offering today. Right. And at, at the center of all of them is how to cope with desire. Right. You know, the hedonist says, go for it. And the, and the Stoics said, quit that, you know, just pursue <laughs> virtue instead. And the Epicureans try to do some middle, middle balance. And here we are, you know, 2000 some years later, and the same different solutions are still, you know, talking. I, I had a wonderful time on the Stoa podcast for, for Stoicism mm. uh, last week. Very interesting talk with Caleb uh, on that podcast. So it's, it's really got me thinking about the fact again this this tendency for humans to simplify again i mean we want to have it either go for it you know hedonism or or inhibit everything stoicism or we we want to simplify and have some something to grab onto that is our flag and we want to advocate for that um i think one thing an evolutionary perspective does is to pull us back from all of that and allow us to kind of look and say hey um this problem of you know trying to control desires in order to live a somewhat happy life and keep some friends um is intrinsic to the nature of social life right now we want to come back a little bit to social selection and you know it's wonderful it shaped us to be moral and and it shaped us to have deep friendship and love but it also made us have so much guilt and so much low self-esteem and we care so much what other people think about us um and here's where where your curve comes in and where should we be set on that U curve, there's quite a wide range, as I'm sure you've yeah. noticed in your life, with some people who, who worry about everything they say, and other people just say whatever they want to and do whatever they want to to hell with other people. Um, it's very interesting. The natural selection hasn't narrowed that too much. So would that, so would the answer to what you just mentioned be the explanation that evolutionists usually offer to explain heterogeneity of personality types, right? Where the idea is that evolution could not have honed in on a singular optimal personality profile, precisely because there are many different social ecosystems. And so what constitutes an optimal personality type in ecosystem A might be exactly what you don't want to have in ecosystem B. And therefore, while we can have fixed our fingers to be, you know, 10, 10 fingers, you can't have a fixed personality, right? Doesn't that answer what you just proposed? Um, so I've just done a deep dive into all of that, and it's been really you know, the the basic evolutionary biology about subtypes within a species is such a rich, interesting, and continuing to be controversial area. I mean, I like to study it from the point of view of color diversity in flowers. 
Mm. And why is it that in certain species of flowers, you get two different colors all in the same field? And it turns out that there are about six possible different reasons. And it's very hard to tell, even if you can study flowers and do real experiments. Well, give give us one or two of the reasons. It's, it's intriguing. Can you give us some? Um, if there are different pollinators, uh, okay. maybe one pollinator comes in the morning, the other pollinator comes at night, then, then there can be a frequency-dependent selection. Um, if there are different times of year. But, but here's the key. I mean, the vast majority of flowers have one color that maximizes fitness. And in order to create an explanation for different subtypes, that's really a special case. And it's led me to think that, you know, the different personality types are not, in fact, adaptations for different social niches. Uh, they are variations uh, that give them different fitness advantages in the constantly shifting uh, mm. different niches that we all experience. So I'm seeing the variation is much more profoundly influenced by stochasticity than by natural selection. But I'll be the first to say that this is a very current controversial area. And I think John Tubi and Lita Cosmides were probably right. They, that's what they were saying back 20, 30 years ago, is that there's a modal uh, personality you know, set that on average across environments tends to be best. And it might shift depending on environmental changes and, and, and the like. Uh, but the variations within a species in general are stochastic, not adaptive. But since environments vary so much, they, it could be quite, quite wrong. But by the way, the, that plasticity captures something that many of the people who don't understand evolutionary theory don't get, which is that the fact that you offer an evolutionary explanation for something doesn't mean that it is biologically deterministic because adaptability is itself an adaptation as per the immune system. Uh, is this something that, what surprises me is that I understand that, say, the average layperson may not get this, but what, if I may say, pisses me off is when otherwise smart colleagues don't understand that and then write me obnoxious emails telling me what a bunch of non-falsifiable garbage evolutionary psychology is. That's really what draws my ire when people say, oh, you guys just sit around, you know, with a with a pipe and a cognac coming up with fanciful stories. And it pisses me off because usually the ones who are levying those attacks are otherwise colleagues of ours. Right, right. Now, I think we need to be sympathetic because you know these are subtle issues and we don't actually have our act completely together, <laughs> I don't think, as evolutionary psychiatrists and psychologists to, to make clear these things. I mean, here's, here's, for instance, something I've been talking with some of the leaders in the field about uh, in recent weeks. Um, I, my, my, my thesis, and I'm not sure this is going to work out, my thesis is that we should offer evolutionary explanations only for traits that are universal in the species with very, very few exceptions. Now, obviously there's vast differences in behavior because some of the things that are universal in the species are, for instance, control systems. Mm -hmm. Control systems for your heart rate going up when you're exercising. Control systems for your emotional constellation when your partner tends to stray. Uh, control systems for when somebody insults you. I mean, there's all these but how many control systems, here's my other thing from recent months, Ken, how many control systems are in our body? Is We all learn about homeostasis, right? Right. Uh, so blood sugar and glucose and oxygen and pH, you know. But if you think about it, every single gene expression is regulated. Right. Every single cell division or lack of division is regulated. I mean, there are tens of thousands of interwoven control systems in the body 
and and all all thanks to fewer than twenty thousand genes. I mean, how can we get our hands around? I mean, just, I mean our uh, my my presentation. I have a symposium at the International Society for Evolution of Medicine and Public Health this August. Um, I'm really looking forward to it because four of us are going to give presentations basically about the body is not a machine. And thinking about it as if it's a machine and interpreting its parts as if they were designed with specific functions fundamentally misrepresents what's going on. And this is this is in emotions research, it's prominent. I think it's prevalent sometimes in evolutionary psychology, and it's certainly present in genetics where we try to figure out what's the function of this gene as if it's you know got one function. I mean, we need a, a different metaphor for the body and there's nothing out there uh, to help us you know, grasp this kind of organic complexity uh, that makes it so hard to describe, you know, not just cognition and emotions, but even physiological systems and genetic regulatory mechanisms. Interesting. What would you think are some of the most fertile future frontiers in evolutionary psychology? And before you answer it, I may, perhaps I can offer my answer to my question. So I think some of the real exciting potential breakthroughs is when you apply EP in applied fields, right? So here comes Gatsad in, 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 you know, in, in business and consumer psychology and economic decision-making. Here comes Randy Nesse in medicine. Uh, here comes this next guy in politics or in architecture. Do, do you see that? Because I mean, the reason I ask this is because while, of course, there's a million additional things that we could study about mating behavior and about the menstrual cycle and so on and the facial symmetry, I'm, I'm not denigrating that. We've done amazing work in those fields. An additional paper on the effects of the menstrual cycle on female behavior, while it might be great, it feels like a plus delta, plus epsilon. But the real big bank for the buck is going to come when you go into new fields that have yet to be Darwinized and then Darwinize the hell out of them. But does that make sense? Do you agree with that? And if not, what's what's your view? I sure do agree. And the example you gave uh, illustrates why it's so difficult. You know, I got, I got into evolutionary psychology because I thought that psychiatry didn't have a proper scientific foundation. And once I realized that the whole field of behavioral ecology existed, um, it was time to you know, try to bring that to psychiatry. And now, 40 years later, we're on the cusp of actually starting to do that. Um, it's going to take a lot longer to do that. But I quite quite agree it's going to come from... I, mean, I wouldn't... Do I want... I'm not, am I still an evolutionary psychologist? I don't know. Um, I think that the, the difference and why I went to evolutionary medicine, again is because it, it asks these different kinds of questions. I mean, evolutionary psychology is mainly asking about how behavior is adaptive and how it increases transmission of genes. Once you move to evolutionary medicine, and it took 10 years for me to figure this out, um, it's a whole different kind of question, which is why did natural selection shape mechanisms that are suboptimal? Uh, right. One of my favorite articles is called Maladaptation and Natural Selection, which I wrote to honor George Williams, uh, paraphrasing off his famous book, Adaptation and Natural Selection. And it, and it covers you know, the several reasons why natural selection leaves us vulnerable. And, and it turns out there's so much basic science that's yet to be applied. But you also mentioned the business about facial symmetry and females sneaking off at mid-cycle. To um, you, here's an anecdote you might appreciate. Uh, when I spent a sabbatical in England, um, in gosh, it was 2002. 
I got together a group of six or seven of the leading evolutionary psychology and types um, to have a seminar. And my modest goal was we were going to create standards of evidence for the field and all agree on it. And finally, we were going to get past all of these silly difficulties. Um, and so I picked as the first um, topic for us to settle on, because I thought it would be kind of easy, uh, the hypothesis that natural selection shaped females to prefer uh, certain kinds of aggressive and square-jawed, uh, symmetrical men at mid-cycle so they could get better genes. And gosh, by the end of the first hour of discussion, half of the people were saying, well, it's obviously an adaptation. You couldn't have anything like that. You know, that wasn't. And the other people were saying, no, I don't think so. And and we, we met three or four more times and we were never able to agree either on the specifics of that particular hypothesis or on general um, general criteria. And how long did it take? Uh, you followed this, I'm sure, um, but it hasn't been until the last five years or so. Yeah. I think finally people are saying, well, actually the phenomenon itself um, is pretty shaky and probably doesn't exist um, right. to say nothing. Of, I mean, it's, it's such a, I mean, I give huge credit to the editors of evolution and human behavior. And that's the journal I got going uh, for yeah. the human behavior and evolution society. That's my huge contribution, I think. Um, but the editors has finally gotten together to put a look, encourage publication of, of self-critical and, and a good thoughtful back and forth. Uh, and I, I think the issue is settled now, but, I'm sure other people don't agree with that. But I love you started your last point by talking about standards of evidence. So one of the things that I talk about, if you'll forgive the, the self-plug in this book, in The Parasitic Mind, in chapter seven, I talk about how to seek truth. And then I use the example from evolutionary thinking, this nomological networks of cumulative evidence, right? The idea that you know, it, imagine it's kind of a, a, an orgiastic triangulation, but not, and it's more than just triangulation. Triangulation might apply, you know, three different ways that you're coming at it. But it's, if you find a phenomenon that you can validate across cultures, across time periods, across species, across methodologies, across frameworks, across theoretical, you know, approaches, if all of that is converging onto that phenomenon being true, then you're likely to be able to say that it, it looks like it's standing on firm ground. And I, I developed, I mean, of course, you know, the paper by Pilcher and Schmidt, where they introduce, they, they used uh, something akin to a nomological network for demonstrating, you know, the pregnancy sickness phenomenon, right? I used it in my case for all sorts of other contexts even outside of the realm of evolutionary theory, but it's a way of how to think, right? What would be the evidence that I need to accumulate from every possible conceivable source so that I can convince my staunchest critic that I'm standing on firm ground? And I think it's evolutionists who came up with that approach, you know? I mean, Charles Darwin did it without calling it nomological networks of cumulative evidence. Right. So I was unable to go to the Human Behavior and Evolution Society meeting this year. I was very sorry not to, because Bobby Lowe gave a, a keynote talk. And, and I heard, however, that John Tooby and Lita Cosmides gave a talk about how um, most scientific work is actually not in the service of finding truth. It's in the service of gaining recruits to one's own point of view. <laughs> And I, I really want to hear what they said and, and find the paper that, that's come down from this, because this, this goes exactly to my main mission now, which is trying to encourage my colleagues in evolutionary psychiatry uh, to find ways 
other than this this prior where where we all just fight with each other and write papers and two years later somebody disagrees with you in print and the like there there should be better ways of doing that um and these these so-called antagonistic collaborations right uh, where people who have different points of view work together to try to be very clear about what the question is and what the hypothesis is and what the evidence is and i think that kind of thing what we're doing now in science in general i think and not not in psychology and all of science um is a manifestation of human evolutionary psychology yeah uh, we we all you know try to convince everybody else to be on our side and we get mad and and we misrepresent the other side and we try to say everything good about our point of view and everything bad about the other point of view and and i think an evolutionary perspective can help us to step back from that and to instead say no you know i have this tendency just to push my own point of view but uh please help me understand why i'm wrong Right. Well, it's easy for me to say that. Uh, put, 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 uh, put me on a specific topic, and I'll say, "Oh, I'm right." <laughs> Although <laughs> we all do. I, I, I have, I guess, bad news from the perspective of being a honest purveyor of truth. Right. So, in, in chapter seven, I'm saying, "Look, here is an epistemological approach called nomological networks of cumulative evidence that can get at the truth." But I lead off that chapter by actually speaking about something that's very much related to what you said that Tubi and Cosmides were saying. I, I wasn't there either, so I'm not familiar with that work. But if you know the work of two evolutionists, Dan Sperber and Hugo Mercier, they wrote a book called, uh, I can't remember what the book is called, but it's Theory of Argumentation, where they argue that our, our ability to reason did not evolve to seek truth in some vague abstract sense, but rather it evolved to win arguments. To your point, Randy. So, so here I come and saying, look, if you are a true purveyor of truth, here is a technique by which we can get a truth. And Sperber and Mercier are saying, Nobody cares about being truthful or seeking truth. I just want to win arguments. So does that make us cynics then? I mean, that doesn't sound like good news, Randy. So, you know, the cynics were, of course, another Greek philosophy. Um, and, and there was this guy I always admired named Socrates, you know, and, <laughs> and he tried not to push his point of view directly, uh, right. but to ask questions. Uh, it still remains one of the very best ways, I think, of making progress. Of course, as any professor knows, however, if you ask the right questions, you can help people um, get to a point of view that you want them to get to. Um, so th these are human, should we call them human failings or should we just acknowledge that, you know, objectivity is probably often causing a selective disadvantage? Right. Um, yeah, interesting. Okay, uh, I just we all, we have only a few minutes left, and then I'm going to ask you a question only available to my subscribers. Are there any projects that you would like to use this forum to promote? Please take it away, sir. So there are a lot of us organizing now evolutionary psychiatry. There's a meeting of the World Psychiatric Association leaders tomorrow or next day uh, to figure out, do we want a newsletter? Is it time to start a journal and, and the like? Um, on my webpage, there's a little thing called Network where there's a place you could sign up to let people know about your interest. Essentially, this is what we did for starting the Human Evolution Society and what we did for starting the uh, International Society for Evolution, Medicine, Public Health. And now it looks like we're going to be starting a society for evolutionary psychiatry. Um, I'm hoping they can all stay together instead of fragmenting right. off, you know, because they have so much to offer, offer each other. So that's, that's something I hope anybody who's listening will... will um, contribute to. 
I also hope anybody who's listening who uh, is involved in medical education uh, will get in touch because there are lots of us who are eager to help deans and others. Uh, it is time now and, and people are more receptive to the possibility of putting things in medical schools. And I think it, paradoxically, it might well be in psychiatry where evolutionary medicine has its greatest effect because the field is most desperately in need uh, of an additional scientific foundation. So I, I'm hopeful that you know, by reading books and, and attending lectures and, and the like, uh, junior psychiatrists are going to say, hey, there is a way to make sense out of all of this. Um, and that will help evolutionary medicine itself along. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Randy. Stay on the line for the subscription-only uh, questions. What a pleasure to have you back. Let's not wait another seven and a half years before we bring okay. you back to the show. Great to talk with you again. You too. Cheers.